God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. My guest today is Julie Ferwerda. Julie is an inspirational writer who seeks to help others experience transformational healing by overcoming fear and developing awareness of their invincible connections to God self, and others. She is the author of several books, including Raising Hell, Christianity's Most Controversial Doctrine Put Under Fire, and One Million Arrows, Raising Your Children to Change the World. She currently works as both a travel ER nurse and a wellness guide online to inspire others to live out their full physical, emotional, spiritual, and creative potential. I'm so excited to welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, Julie Ferwerda. Thank you, Jason. I'm so excited to be here today. I love what you're doing. I've had a chance to look through your podcast a little bit and man, you've got some great titles there. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Well, we're really honored to have you on the podcast. When I made that first list of potential guests over a year ago, when we launched this thing, your name was on that list. Wow. And so this is a, a, a real honor for me yeah. to get to speak with you today. Well, um, we you. usually start off with our guests talking about their spiritual upbringing. Were you raised in an atmosphere of faith? Uh, yes, I was. I was raised in a family, an intact family. My parents stayed married throughout my childhood, but my mom was the one who took us to church. And I actually was raised in my formative years in the Nazarene church. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I was raised there as well. Are you serious? Oh my gosh. Yes, <laughs> then, you know, <laughs> I do. Um, yeah, the Nazarene church was kind of a traumatic experience for me as a young person. I mean, it gave me a very solid foundation in religion, but it also built within me just, you know, a lot of huge fears because they were very hell and brimstone teaching. And I feel like I spent my, you know, um, young adult years trying to overcome some of that fear that I had of God, which we can get into that more. But after probably age of 12, I was just, I spent my time in a mix of evangelical Christian churches, everything from Baptist to independent Bible churches. So kind of a mix. You're kind of a, a spiritual mutt like I am yeah. as far as all the different <laughs> denominational background. Okay. So when I first I guess there's there's just no other term that fits, came to Jesus or got saved uh, in the Nazarene church. It was in response to an altar call, a children's revival, a really sweet older couple came to the church, mm. taught us all about hell and how God loved us so much he didn't want us to go there. And so he sent Jesus to die in our place. Was that pretty much the message that you got in the Nazarene church as well? Yeah, and actually the... The church I grew up in, I don't know if it was, you know, consistent with other Nazarene churches around the world, but the one I grew up in, we had an altar call pretty much every week. And it Absolutely. was just drilled into us, not only that we needed to be saved from our sins or else we would go to hell, but also the message that if you went to bed at night with any unconfessed sin and Jesus came back and, you know, took the Christians off into the ether, <laughs> um, you would be left behind. So I just grew up with this like torturous feeling every, even every night trying to go to sleep and remember all the things I did wrong that day, lest I get left behind in the night. 
I remember those uh, goodnight prayers and how exhausting it could be Ugh. and how fearful it could be. Because what if I forgot one? Mm-hmm. Or what if I fell asleep before I got finished with the list, right? There was so much fear involved in that. Oh, and I mean, just to expand on that, I actually had a few times as a child where I couldn't find anyone. Like my parents were suddenly missing and, you know, I couldn't get a hold of friends or whatever. And I actually felt like I was left behind. And I know it, it sounds ludicrous, but there was one time, I think I was in high school when I woke up one morning and my mom wasn't home and there was nobody and I couldn't, and you know, I tried calling everyone I knew and nobody answered the phone and I thought I was left behind and I walked all the way to school in a snowstorm and two feet of snow, like sobbing my eyes out. And (laughs) just, this is the effect that all this had on me as a child. I was just locked up in fear. It's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. So I know that building on a foundation of fear it was like a fatal flaw built into my faith that was just bound for deconstruction at some point in the future. What did that upbringing teach you about who God was? What did you, how would you have described God in those days? Unfortunately, I mean, it's clear that I perceived God as angry, conditional, you know, distant, holding an ax just above my head, waiting, you know, to drop it at any time if I crossed the line too far. And the sad part is that this was a lot like my father, my earthly father too. So I had a very visceral, like experiential view of God in my own household. And, you know, this kind of God was very small-minded, very petty, um, very authoritarian, not tender or nurturing. And, you know, as I look back now, I feel like this God was more like a tyrant or a Hitler than a loving parent. I feel like this view of God was abusive and hypocritical, impossible to please. But like you said, I just obeyed because I was scared. And I realized that later I've realized any God that demands that you serve him out of fear is really just creating an inauthentic experience or, you know, hypocritical followers that are just doing lip service and not because there's any genuine inner change or desire for a relationship with that God. So I guess in short, I would just say the God I first believed in should have been locked up in prison instead of running the universe. (laughs) Can you relate to that? (laughs) Absolutely. Of course. I I beat myself up often Mm -hmm. because I think it should have occurred to me earlier that when they said God is love, but then reinforce that with hell, you know, God loves you. So now live up to it right? or act right. So you don't lose this gift of this free gift of salvation. At what point in your life did you start to say these things aren't adding up? Well, you know, the first thing we have to understand is that children for the first seven years of life, they go through what's called a theta stage of psychological development. And it's almost like being hypnotized. And I don't understand exactly why the universe programmed us this way to, to have this. But the reason why we don't question sooner is when you're in this theta stage, you are under hypnosis and you're basically being shaped into a, a narrative that is very convincing to you because that's all you know. And it's very, very difficult to break out of that. And I feel like you know, the things you're saying, like what caused me to start rethinking, this was a lifetime pursuit of God coming in and, um, you know, breaking up some of those, those foundation stones I had one by one. And I think that for me, I had a lot of pivotal points in my faith journey that made me start to repair the damage of this image that the church cast in my heart about God. So 
um, I guess you could say that I didn't rethink these on my own, but God found me and my false beliefs and set about showing me the, his truer character, his or her truer character. So some of those stages, I can just kind of recap them a little bit if we have time for that. But of course, yeah, I would love to hear that. Um, so very pivotal. When I was 16, I was just driving in a car, not thinking of anything in particular when a thought just suddenly dropped in. And later I came to recognize that as the spirit, you know, speaking into me, but just saying that you are my daughter. And when I adopted you, there's no going back on that. Like you're not going to go to bed some night and suddenly my love has changed into hate. You know, I adopted you and I will never go back on that. So that was my first introduction to the concept of not being able to lose my salvation. And then I would say in my early 20s, I was basically after having this kind of a spiritual upbringing and an abusive father, I really was a hot mess in my 20s. I had a lot of anger and a lot of unresolved things, but I I became really angry at God about, you know, how I mentioned earlier, I felt like the axe was about to drop at any time. Right. You start to resent that over time, don't you? Oh, oh, I was, I was really, something just snapped in me because I felt like I always, you know, did all the right things and worked so hard and toiled so hard, but yet it was never good enough. And I had a whole year in my 20s where I just kind of rebelled against that. And I was like, I don't even want to serve this kind of a God if I'm just always waiting, you know, to be punished or, you know, for that axe to drop and just (laughs) obliterate me or whatever. And that's not the kind of God I want to serve. And so for a year, I I ignored God in my, my own way. And it was amazing because I felt like I was followed with mercy. And it was like really noticeable. It wasn't my imagination. In other words, like everything I did, I just felt like this peace and blessing and everything. So that was like God wooing me back, you know, gently and slowly. And then in my early 30s, I had a royal screw up in my life. (laughs) I'm sure you're going to be curious about that, but it made me (laughs) want to connect with God's unlimited grace instead of the punishment or judgment. And I feel like that royal screw up was exactly what I needed to get over the hurdle of of that punishing God and to connect with mercy in a way that I never could have any other way. And I will say too that throughout this period of my life, it was a real struggle because I had done all of the formulas. Like I grew up in church, I had my quiet times, I prayed, I, you know, read my Bible, I memorized scripture, like I did all the things I tried to be a good person. And at the same time, I remember in my 20s being really depressed and telling a close friend in church that I felt like a salesman who didn't believe in my own products because no matter what I did right, I didn't feel like it was producing the fruit in my life that I thought should be there, especially my inner transformation stuff, like the anger that I had and the fear and just all these personality um, flaws that I had. And it didn't matter how hard I tried to work on myself, my faith wasn't working for me. And so I, I really never shared my faith, even though I was very involved in ministry and and doing everything, I just felt like, what do I have to offer somebody? Like, it's not really working for me. Then I guess moving into my 30s with raising children, I had a daughter. I still have this daughter. <laughs> but um, that's good. Yeah. Danny, she was my firstborn. And she always had a very deep 
I guess, connection to God and understanding. And she was always questioning hell throughout her childhood. You know, she'd come to me and just say, mommy, this just doesn't make sense to me. How could some God that we supposedly love actually send people to hell, especially people who don't have never had the chance to hear about him. And, you know, I gave her all of the pat answers that we learn in church, like, well, you know, God is perfectly loving and just, and we can't understand his ways. And, those people at some point had a chance to hear if God, you know, because God is fair and we just can't, you know, understand, but she could never let it go. Like she was agonized over this. And I, the, like you were just saying, why didn't I, why didn't I stop and question this? Like I beat myself up later for not listening to the child because it is the child that has the the wisdom and the perception. And I can't believe how I dismissed her all those years through her childhood. But I feel like she was, kind of one of the catalysts, you know, for me, at least to start thinking about these. And so, and then my last stage, I guess, was as I moved into my early 40s, I started just becoming really discontent with the church. And I don't mean this to sound egoic or anything, but I just felt like I was above my teachers. I felt like I was never learning anything new. And I felt like we were just kind of play acting and going through these motions. And I didn't really see how the church was transforming anyone and especially not the world. And like, to me, it was just becoming more and more irrelevant. Like I had a a friend that had a meth addiction and I wanted to, I invited her to church, but, you know, she tried to come to church once, but she had no comfort or no sense of belonging in that place. And I just realized the church is so far away from being relevant to the culture and to the needs of the people. And I also just noticed at that time how after four decades of giving myself to complete you know, love and devotion and service to God that I really didn't have love in my heart for people. And this was so troubling for me. It was kind of a crisis of faith. And I remember that one day I was walking in the rain and I was just crying out to God. And I I was just so aware that I didn't have love in my heart. And I was painfully aware that I could not contrive or put love in my own heart. And if I was going to really love people, it was going to have to come from God. And, you know, just after that, a series of events, I started kind of studying the Bible from Jewish perspectives, which opened up a Pandora's box for me because I realized how far off the Western interpretation of the Bible is. And then I started finding Bible errors. So, you know, the point I'm trying to make here is that you don't just turn on a dime. Like whenever you're dealing with God, it's like a slow guided series of events in your life that opens you and cracks open that veneer and shows you that you're missing something. And it, you know, over time we become ready to hear the messengers. And I just see how God was painstakingly patient with the process of transforming my faith into something real, something consistent and something, you know, actually good. Absolutely. I know in my own journey, uh, I had talked a lot about the love of God over the years. I ended up as a Southern Baptist pastor for several years. Wow. And I preached this God of love, which of course, you know, backing that up with the reinforcement of hell and, you know, you've got to earn it and have your quiet time and read your chapters of the Bible every day and pray enough and know God's will and all the way down to, you know, what kind of socks to wear every day. It was ridiculous. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But I didn't really believe in the love of God until I went through a divorce and lost 
everything. The ministry fell apart, lost the church, lost uh, ministry friends that I you know, thought would always be with me. Mm-hmm. And it was like, until God was the only one left in some regard, um, I, I didn't really believe in the love. And then, you know, God sent me, mm-hmm. I've got, I've gotten remarried and, and my second wife, she's just such an incredible testimony every day of the love of God that never quits for me. She knows all the junk. She knows everything that I've been through, but she just has this steadfast love. And wow, uh, it's such, it's such a gift, but I know that I wouldn't have ever experienced that love except through great loss. It sounds like your story is kind of similar in that regard. Well, actually, yes. You know, the thing I told you I went through in my early thirties and I, I know I'm an open book. I never have trouble talking about anything because I feel like the only thing anybody can use against you is, you know, the things that you have shame over. And if you don't, then right, the secrets. Yeah. Um, but in my thirties, kind of the similar story to what you're saying, I, I ended up, I was married to my high school sweetheart and just through a series of, long drawn out events, you know, our marriage fell apart and I ended up having an affair, which I felt like at that time, you know, you, I guess you grow up in the church and you think your only way out of marriage is to do something stupid or drastic because you're not allowed to divorce. (laughs) And so it wasn't an option. I was trying to fix my own problems. You know, I was deeply lonely and resentful and all the things. And I had this affair and exactly what you said, like my life was taken to ground zero and I felt like I lost everything overnight. And, but that's exactly what I needed to start. First of all, feeling that incredible grace and love of God that I'd never had the opportunity to experience from that place of deep nothingness and brokenness. You know, that's when that was actually a real turning point in my life with God was from that point on, because I just started seeing God building my life back on a completely different foundation of strength and love and connection and, you know, even miracles. I I just started to see so many miracles in my life from that point. And it just showed me that it wasn't about how good I was. Could you tell us about one of the miracles? Um, well, there were so many, I mean, like I had to start providing for myself and there were times where I would be like negative, you know, in my income and just suddenly, you know, somebody, a random friend would send me some money or I guess also I, I met another man after my divorce, a missionary kid from Beirut, Lebanon. And we just, we had this most incredible, joyful love story where God just took those, all those broken pieces of my life and, you know, people pointing me in my shame and saying I could never marry again because I'd be committing adultery or whatever. And, but we saw God just put together this amazing love story. So my first book is called The Perfect Fit, Piecing Together True Love. And it's basically a a record of that journey, just full of all kinds of miracles. Oh, wow. I love it. That's great. So the refining of my faith, I, I tend to call it a, a spiritual evolution. It led to a place of love and of peace, but it was pretty traumatic in the process. Did you experience trauma on the way out of traditional Christianity? Well, I think most of the trauma is the stuff I was saying where you act out because you're doing it for all the wrong reasons and you cause, you create your own trauma through trying to solve your problems or trying to control the universe because 
under those old lenses, the universe isn't safe. And so what, you know, everything you do, you're trying to control outcomes, whether it's raising children or trying to be in charge of your own happiness, if you believe, you know, in, in any kind of ultimate loss. And so I think most of my trauma was leading up to my change in worldviews. But, you know, we haven't really talked too much about my change in worldviews. But when I basically was going through my transition into rejecting the doctrine of hell. And that's what I wrote the book Raising Hell about. Um, It was mildly traumatic. Now, I will say everything in my life changed. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But from the trauma side, I had a huge loss of identity. I mean, my entire life I had invested in this view of religion of being dangled over the flames. And suddenly, you know, that was I found out that was a lie. And so a complete shift in identity in my friends, my family members, my professional credibility, you know, I was really surprised at how my, I thought a third grader could see all of the, the things that I presented in my book. And my Christian friends, first of all, weren't even interested in reading it. They were, you know, suddenly I became a danger. And if they did try to look into it, they just couldn't see it. And I just, you know, it was so strange to me, but we lost all these people that we thought were our closest friends. You know, at that time I was writing for a lot of prominent Christian publishers and websites. I even, I had like a blog on cbn.com and I had a blog on crosswalk.com and I was writing for some Thomas Nelson projects and I basically didn't get fired. I just left because I knew I was never going to fit into those places anymore. It was such a massive overhaul of my whole worldview. And for a while, I guess part the other part of the trauma is I was really angry at how I'd been lied to and brainwashed and controlled, suppressed, you know, I mentally abused. I felt really adrift for a few years while I was transitioning into a new faith. You know, I lived now in uncertainty and questions and not knowing the answers, which is the opposite of the flavor of Christianity I'd been involved in, which was very attached to certainty under the guise of faith. And I say the guise of faith because faith shouldn't need to be certain. But in Christianity, you know, they, they're all about certainties and answers and having everything neatly and well-defined. And so this was a really unsettling time for me, but I have to say, balance it out with the fact that my transition in my faith was infinitely liberating and blissful. And I felt like, like it was so worth it because all those things I just described, I suddenly felt born again for the first time in my life. Having grown up in the Christian faith and hearing people talk about, you know, the born again experience, I'd never really felt that before. And I was always kind of jealous. But when I finally realized that God really was consistent and loving and good, it was like, and also that my product was sellable. You remember I said I was a salesman who didn't believe in my products. Right. I suddenly saw all of life through these new sunny lenses. And I walked around for an entire year feeling as if a giant weight had been lifted from my chest. And all of the pain and the struggle and the loss that I was experiencing in this transition just felt so worth it. And I didn't even mind the rejection or the uncertainty because, you know, for the first time I didn't have to fear about how anything turns out. And 
I was able to stop controlling everyone and everything and let God be God. I didn't have to worry about my kids anymore, like their ultimate destinies, you know, that just relieves so much burden. So I would just say everything that you go through that's a shift, it, there is trauma, but that, you know, if it's a good change, it's more than worth wherever it takes you. So absolutely. All right. So you mentioned Danny talking to you about how can there be a hell if God is love mm-hmm. and you kind of pushing back against that. I, I, I hate the word, but it really feels like we were so brainwashed growing up that we just couldn't conceive of a concept of a God whose love just didn't look so different than our own, right? God's love looks like punishing people who reject him. Yes. um, Which obviously is ridiculous now on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. But how did you go from pushing back against that to writing a book that told the world that the doctrine of hell is a lie? What happened to you in the meantime? It was it was basically, you know, I, I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but I had a friend who we were studying Jewish perspectives and mostly Messianic Jewish perspectives. But this a whole world of understanding opened up in my mind when I started having a Jewish person explain how the Bible works, <laughs> you know, like what do all these layers and symbols and numbers mean? And what are the feasts and the harvests and the covenants? Like, what were those about? And I I have a whole section of my book devoted to the Jewish perspectives, which everyone should have a chance to learn about and how they basically spell out the destiny of humankind. And it's all about salvation for all. And salvation, you know, in the Greek just means being made um, whole or being healed. And so as I studied these Jewish perspectives, there was no room for hell. And at the same time, as I was studying these, I was learning how to use a concordance for myself and, you know, how to start looking up the Greek and the Hebrew. And I started finding translation errors. And I got to tell you, I'm the kind of person like, it's crazy that it took me so long to see this, but I'm not one to just be confronted with a truth and cover it up. I'm one to like start digging further and see, well, what's going on here? And the more I dug, the more I, I realized how much our Bibles had been played with. And it made me just want to turn over every stone for a while. So that's what I did for like an entire year. I, I studied the Bible up and down inside and out, you know, and I used all kinds of resources, but it didn't take me very long. And also I will add to that too, that my husband at the time was questioning all these things himself and separately from even anything I was finding out. And I had been trying to quell his curiosities. I was like, what do you mean there's no hell? Like get out of town. I don't know what you're talking about. Stop studying. (laughs) But once I, Oh, and then the other thing is I started seeing the Bible through new lenses because for the previous years, I had been reading through the one-year Bible and even taking women through it. So I was very familiar with my Bible, but all of a sudden I came to a site proposing that there was no such thing as hell and that Jesus, the message of Jesus and the Bible is really that God saves all in the end. And I started reading through these new lenses and people were showing me verses on websites that I'd never seen that way before, but they could, you couldn't deny they were saying God saves all. It's like they would say the same all that died in Adam are the same all that are made alive in Christ. And I'm like, how could that mean anything else unless not all died in Adam, you know, if only a few are alive in Christ. So 
it was just a work in progress. And one thing led to another. And um, my husband and I decided that if hell wasn't true, as we were being confronted with, you know, certain evidences, that it should easily, every argument that we had in favor of hell should be easily shot down. And we also are both, you know, critical thinkers and educated and curious. So we decided to go two different routes. And he went one route to read up on, you know, what he could learn about if hell was false. And I went another route and we came back together after, you know, only a couple of weeks. And we both came to the same conclusion that hell wasn't true. And so, but it was like over the next year that I started putting all those pieces together, like hunting down the answer to all my questions. And, but it didn't take long till I just knew hell wasn't true. And it was so, so liberating. You mentioned one of the things that pointed you in that direction was discovering how our Bibles had been played with. Can you give us an example of that? Well, for one thing, I spend a lot of time in, in the book, Raising Hell, showing this to people, like not just telling them, but showing them how they can find it for themselves. But let's just take the word hell. There's at least four distinct words in the Bible that are translated as hell. And each of these words has its own meaning and it's not hell. And so right there, you can see that there's an agenda to try to shape our thinking into something. And, um, and we'll, I'll talk about those words in a second, but the other problem is you can look at all these different Bible versions and each one renders a different number of the word hells. And it just made sense to me that if hell's really occurring in, in the original text, every single Bible should have the same number of representations of the word hell in the text. So, you know, like the King James has like over 50 and the NIV and NASB have around 13, 14 references. And then interestingly, the literal translations have zero uses of the word hell. So that that was curious enough. But then you look into the words that have been rendered as hell. You know, the first one that is we always go to with Jesus is Gehenna. And Jesus only spoke of Gehenna on four unique occasions. Like if you look through all the gospels, the most he ever talked about Gehenna was on four occasions. And then he was speaking to the Pharisees and the apostles, not to the general public. And Gehenna is actually a literal valley outside of Jerusalem where it was a notorious place of punishment or, you know, national judgment, I should say, for Israel, for all of their injustices. And an ironic thing about Gehenna is that that in the Old Testament, it was called the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, and that's where the Israelites would burn their children in fire to Moloch, which God said was, said was a detestable thing that never entered his mind to do or command. And so why would Jesus be talking about a place where God was going to burn his children forever when God said that's a detestable thing to do? And, you know, then you've got the word Hades and the word Sheol and the word Tartaru, which we don't have to expand on those right now, but those are all unique words that do not imply anything to do with, you know, burning sulfur, or eternal punishment. So all of those things just led me down a path of inquiry. Your, your book, Raising Hell, is just a masterclass on salvation and freedom. And I just found so much strength from it. I remember coming across it a while back. And uh, like I said, before the podcast even launched, and it was all right there. And you're absolutely right. You, you don't just give us the information. You 
provide us with tools to dig it out for ourselves. And I really appreciated that about your book. And I'm really grateful for it. Uh, but you take on hell, judgment, Satan, the various translations of scripture that you mentioned earlier. I would imagine those topics can generate quite a bit of pushback from churchgoers. Why did you decide it was worth it to take on those central ideas of what we knew as the Christian faith? An interesting question, because I don't think I decided anything. I think it was decided for me. <laughs> as <laughs> gotcha. The evidence was put in front, in front of me. I felt like, especially with my personality, I had no choice to not to, you know, look into it. I've always said that, and especially I've raised my children with this, that the truth can defend itself and should defend itself. So everyone should have the freedom to question their faith if they find inconsistencies or problems. And I did notice that certain questions throughout my life weren't welcome in church, which was troubling. You know, you ask a question and you've gone too far because they shut it down or they evade it or they have a pat answer. But as soon as I found my first modern Bible translation error, as I mentioned, you know, Pandora's box was opened and I felt the responsibility to take on the quest for the answers of my Bible and my faith and my God, just like I had always encouraged my you know, children and my friends to do. So a lot is at stake when you have based your whole worldview, your faith and your future on the concepts and belief systems that come from a book that is presented as inerrant and infallible in the word of God. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. So once I had a reason to question one thing, it gave me permission to question everything and to put all my beliefs to the test. And I feel like what I came out with was a more authentic faith and a more consistent and expansive view of God and a much more transformed life. And so it kind of felt like the parable about the man who found a treasure in a field and he sold everything he had to buy that field. You know, as soon as I connected with this thing that my soul was so hungry for, which was just to be unconditionally loved and accepted and to know that the universe is ultimately safe, that was like... <laughs> that was the treasure. I mean, that was what I'd been looking for my whole life. And so I, not only did I not have a choice, but I would have, especially with what I know now, I would have sold everything to buy that field. It's just been completely worth it. What has the response been to the book since it was released? Interestingly, it's been overwhelmingly positive. Like I expected with, you know, getting it published that it was going to bring out all of the trolls and the haters. And I really haven't had a lot of that. Like, I think there was one time a high profile blogger took it on, but otherwise, well, and I'll also say after shortly after I wrote Raising Hell, I went down the path of getting my nursing degree and, and getting into a nursing career. So I didn't really have a lot of time for marketing, but this book just makes its own way around the world. Like I didn't have to babysit it or market it or anything. Like people are so hungry for the good news. And so many people have written me through the years saying how they've been freed from the horrors of hell and how, you know, and this, I'm not even just talking, you know, a few people here and there. I mean, pastors and theologians and bus drivers and mechanics and people from all countries. Like I get these letters about how this message ha needs to pervade the world because the world has been completely thrown in darkness through the, the false lie of hell. So when, you know, the angel said, in um, Mark, behold, I bring good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all the people. Like this is the good news for all the people. And I feel like the delusion that's spread over the earth 
I think it's in Revelation. It talks about that. I think the delusion or the lie is about this character of God saying that that God would ever quit on his own children in creation. So it's been really positive. Well, good. I'm so glad. Has your faith continued to evolve since the book was published? Like, are there are there things that you would go back and revise now? Are you are you revising it as you uh, adapt your faith? Uh, is there anything you would change in the book? Well, currently, no. For one thing, like my faith in the last ten years since writing the book has evolved immensely. However, I feel like there always needs to be a jumping off place when you're scared and you're just not just early questioning. And I I feel like the me of now still upholds everything that's in my book now. Although I did revise it about a year ago because there were a couple things in there that I couldn't live with, such as my thoughts on judgment. I came to the realization that judgment isn't any kind of a heavy handed outward event, but it's an internal um, shifting of your consciousness. You know, nobody changes through a heavy, ha- heavy handed outward event. That's basically what makes hypocrites, you know, just people who are punished and go along to get along. So I came to realize, you know, this, that judgment is this inner awareness and remorse that we have as we wake up to the the pains or injustices that we've inflicted on others. So I did kind of change that. But as far as, you know, the evolution of faith, once you leave behind that old paradigm of certainty and you start to learn to live in your questions, it's the greatest adventure because you you realize that there's no chance of outgrowing your teacher. <laughs> it's like gutting an old house and you're doing this complete renovation, but there's always like a, a room that you haven't you know touched yet. And it, it's really difficult to try to bridge the gap of people just starting out with their questioning to where I'm at now because it's so far from from where they're at that they they think that I'm dangerous or new age or whatever. But my old self understands understands where they're at, but my expanded or today self knows that there are so many assumptions made about people who are making their faith journey and progress and labels are cheap. I mean, we can see this in every sector of the world today, how people are just trying to label others and shut down the conversation and not listen to where and why, you know, where people are at and why they are there, how they've arrived. But I feel like our culture, just whether it's religious or scientific or medical or climate or any of those, we're just taught to distrust anything and everything that we don't understand or that isn't rigidly defined for us. And we have to uproot this old way of interacting and approaching our faith because faith is ever expanding. And, you know, one of the things I'm working on right now is a book on my deconstruction process. And ultimately what I'm trying to accomplish with this book is showing people that it's a safe universe. It's safe to question. It's safe to deconstruct, to be wrong, to get off some, you know, obscure path that we think exists. Um, we have a very invested heavenly parent that will make it, make sure that a hundred percent of us arrive, you know, home a hundred percent of the time and safely. So I just, I feel like all the fear that has shaped us in the past, we don't even realize how many layers that is, but people are just so afraid of questioning and of being adrift and all that. And there's just no basis for that. So I'm hoping through my next book to try to relieve people's fears and show them that it's really safe to explore the limits of 
of their faith today and just keep letting that expand in front of them. I love the sound of that next book. Do you have a title in mind for it yet? I do. Um, I can't remember it though. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Well, when you have it ready and published, we'd love to talk to you again and uh, to go through that book. I think that would be really helpful for our listeners. I would love that. So can we talk about where you are today spiritually? Like, how would you describe God today? Oh, man, that's really a good one. Okay, well, one of the huge transformational things that have happened to me in these last 10 years is adopting a non-dualism worldview. And non-dualism, like I said, it is a worldview, so it's nothing you can have a five-minute conversation about. But one of the things that has greatly transformed my thinking through this is, and I got this from Jewish mysticism, is the concept that God is both imminent and transcendent. And so obviously we're going to lose the entire view of this old bearded man up in the sky, you know, pushing buttons and pulling strings. I feel like people get really stuck on trying to define God because they're not allowing for both and. And what I mean by that is God is both transcendent and imminent. And that means that the transcendent God is kind of that, maybe the God that we grew up with where this God is out there. It's, you know, some divine intelligence that is in charge of the universe, in charge of the laws, kind of removed from creation, perfect, kind of the left brain idea, you know, of very structured, orderly, but kind of unemotional or uninvolved in creation. And then we've got the imminent God, and that is kind of the um, right-brained. And let's just also say the the transcendent God would be kind of like the masculine uh, energy of God, and the imminent God is more of the feminine energy or the um, the right-brained energy of God. And this is the God that is wrapped up in in creation and completely a hundred percent invested in. Uh, expressed throughout, you know, and this is where you get the idea of we are the divine, we are divine sparks out of the fire of God. Like we're express little expressions of God. This is the imminent God in and through us. And it's really described through the Bible as the Christ. The Christ isn't just Jesus. The Christ is this unifying spirit of God that fills all things. And Paul talks about this. And the other important thing to know about the imminent God is this is the God that is becoming perfect in us and through us and as us. So the hurt that we cause others is this imminent God who hasn't fully awakened yet. And the hurt that we experience from others is this imminent God that's being hurt. And so is God invested and wrapped up in my hurts and problems? Absolutely. But is God above and beyond my problems, absolutely. So I feel like these non-dual worldviews principles that I've kind of latched on to through the years have helped me really make sense out of my belief in God and my understanding of how this story is you know, unfolding and how God interacts and works in and through us. I would imagine that being set free from you know dualism and just fear, a uh, fear-filled faith changes the way that you raise your kids. Uh, you wrote a book called One Million Arrows, Raising Your Children to Change the World. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why you wrote that book? Yeah, um, I wrote that book before I had this big transformation. So I will say that it was initially based on the old foundation of saving people from hell. However, I've gone in and 
and, you know, revised that according to my new world beliefs. But just to tell you a little bit about that book, it's very special and near and dear to my heart because there was a period of time in my 30s when I was working with an international orphan ministry called Hope Givers International. And I was doing promotional writing um, and on staff in both Haiti and India. And in my travels to India, I met with this ministry leader. He he was known as Papa throughout India. And he had like personally rescued since 1966, like 12,000 orphaned and abandoned children on the streets of India and raised them to to be lights in the world. And he based it on the verse out of Psalms that says children are like arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And he, he had such a heart for the orphans and he thought, how can all these orphans or throwaways of society be used to make a difference and bring light into the world? And so he was given that verse by God and he just single-heartedly pursued raising these orphans in loving environments, giving them education and sending them back out into the world with the light of and love of God. And his life goal was to start 1 million churches, raise 1 million orphan and abandoned children to start 1 million churches in India. And I had the incredible pleasure of spending a lot of time with him in the last three years of his life. And he wanted me to write this book to bring it to American parents for two reasons. One is to contribute to the work on the behalf of, you know, the millions and millions of orphans around the world, like bringing relief, but also to challenge American parents to see their own children as arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior. And so the challenge of this book is inspirational to encourage parents to raise their children to use their gifts, their God-given gifts and abilities to make a difference in their culture. And, you know, I feel like so many parents these days are focused on the wrong things of raising their children to just be happy or to be successful or whatever. And we're not raising up the next generation to look at how they can serve and make the world a better place. So this is a call to that and also a call to invest in you know, some kind of orphan ministry or awareness or relief as a family. I love it. I'm really looking forward to reading that book and I'm excited to hear about it today. I know our time's running out. How can our friends listening get a copy of both One Million Arrows, but also Raising Hell? What's the best way for folks to engage with you and your work online? Well, there's a few ways. Um, I have several versions of Raising Hell on Amazon. I have the full-length version for people who love the juicy details. And then I have the short and sweet version for people on the run or who don't have a long attention span. It's only 100 pages. And then I have a Spanish version. But then they can also always find a free PDF at my website, raisinghellbook.com. The book will always be free because I feel like you know, a message like this needs to be accessible to everyone. And I also have a Facebook group discussion group called Raising Hell Book Group for anyone who's interested. And a YouTube channel, it's just youtube.com forward slash Raising Hell. And last but not least, you know, if people are interested in any of my stuff on the empowerment or holistic health and, you know, spiritual growth. I have a website 40, the number 40 fitfree.com. Wonderful. Uh, friends, we're going to link to all of that in the show notes. You'll be able to find links to everything Julie just discussed, 
as well as the book, which you can get a copy of for yourself. I highly recommend it. I hope you'll read it and I hope you'll share it with others. Julie, thank you so much for spending this time with us. I'm so grateful. Thank you, Jason. I really enjoyed being here. I want to say a quick thanks to Chris Aker, who put us in contact and made it possible for us to have this interview. So thank you, Chris. And obviously, thank you so much, Julie. Thanks. Okay, thanks. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.